Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. The United States, like many industrialized countries, has undergone a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion, cementing into place a system of control the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin calls inverted totalitarianism. Inverted totalitarianism retains the institutions, symbols, iconography, and language of the old capitalist democracy, but internally corporations have seized all the levers of power to accrue ever greater profits and political control. Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, in their book, Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy, chart the way the corporate coup d'etat was orchestrated. It examines the use of an international legal system to control and plunder the resources in the developing world, including the overthrow of governments that challenge corporate dominance. The authors expose the nefarious alliance between nonprofit organizations and corporations one that prioritizes profit rather than justice. They document the weakening of labor laws and the evisceration of workers' protections and rights. To enforce this predatory behavior, corporations have not only created, in essence, a global Supreme Court, but raised and funded private mercenary militias to crush labor movements and intimidate and even murder activists. The subversion of democracy abroad is accompanied, the authors argue, by the subversion of democracy at home. The mechanisms of control is used to plunder the developing world are also used in the industrial world. Joining me to discuss Silent Coup is Matt Kennard, a former staff reporter for the Financial Times and co-founder and chief investigator at Declassified UK, a news outlet that investigates British foreign policy. Matt, in your first chapter, titled Democracy on Trial, you write about an international legal case that was launched by a Vancouver-based company called Pacific Rim against the government of El Salvador. And you use this case as a kind of template throughout the book for how large corporations loot and pillage developing countries by forcing them to accept international agreements, investment treaties, and what you call corporate courts that favor global corporations. So I want you to explain what happened in El Salvador and how this system works. Well, I'll start with the system itself and then talk about the El Salvador examples. So effectively, what the system is, is a shadow legal system which operates across the world and affects pretty much every country in the world. Um, and what it does is enshrines a system whereby multinational corporations can sue states for enacting policies they don't like, which they say infringe on their quote-unquote investor rights. This was a system that was created uh, in the heat of the decolonization movement um, and the end of formal empire. Um, so the main body where these cases are heard is actually an arm of the World Bank. And it's called the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID. Very, very little knowledge about it in the, in the, in the developed world. It's everyone in El Salvador, for example, knows the name of it. It's called CIADI by a Spanish acronym. And when we went to El Salvador, everyone knows that. But that's something we can come back to. Um, so this was created in 1966 by the World Bank. Uh, and the 60s obviously was a time when many, many countries in Africa and other places were getting independence. And a lot of people, uh, people who had been fighting the imperial powers on the ground were now becoming presidents and prime ministers. Now, in that scenario, 
the traditional owners of the world were panicking and they thought, how are we going to maintain control? How are we going to ensure our investments are protected when we don't have formal empire to rely on? We don't have a formal garrison of troops based in that country where we can just take out a leader if he does something we don't like. Um, so they came up with this system. And in fact, it was the brainchild of a German banker called Hermann Abs, who, who was a Deutsche Bank, and he was actually associated with the Nazi regime as well. But after the after the Second World War, he um, he 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 thought that the world needed a system that could uh, what he called a capitalist Magna Carta, and he made this famous well, which well, it's not a famous speech. It should be a famous speech, but he made this speech in San Francisco in 1957, where uh, to a group of industrialists from all over the world uh, and all the big wigs in America were there as well, and he said, look. This was in the, the context was this was 1957. So the context was four years before in 1953, MI6 and the CIA had had to take out the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mozadeh, because he nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, what's now BP. The following year, the CIA had to take out the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Abenz, because he had the temerity to redistribute a bit of fallow land back to landless peasants. And then in 1956, there was a Suez crisis where President Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal and there was an invasion by France, the UK and Israel. And he was saying, look, we're going to keep coming up against this problem. We don't want to have to have a system where we have to go in hard, overthrow governments, um, assassinate leaders, whatever it may be. We need a, sh a, a legal system, an infrastructure in place where we can exercise power above the heads of these people. So even if we get a Nasser in power, an Arbenz or a, Mo a Mohammed Mozadeh, they can't move. So his idea was to say, we need a legal system that, is a, that operates above states. It's a supranational institution where investor rights can be um, enforced. Um, he then joined with a British lord called Lord Shawcross, who was actually a Labour lord, and they wrote this um, document called the Ab Shawcross draft convention um and it was about it basically set it was a template for this system and it kind of nothing happened until it was taken up by the world bank in the 60s and then created as as i said as ICSID in 1966 now we went to the world bank archives um as part of the reporting uh in in washington dc and they were quite open on the inside about what it was about it was about enshrining corporate power around the world and and also it was a geopolitical tool during the Cold War, because it was a way of enforcing corporate rule in countries that might be at risk of going to communism. But anyway, it kind of didn't take off as a system really until the end of the Cold War. And we mapped out and analyzed the, the number of cases and it exploded after the end of the Cold War. And a lot of cases have been taken against Eastern European countries, actually, because it's a major system uh, uh, that's enforced on countries that are reintegrated into the Western-backed economic system when 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 a country comes in from the cold and we went to Myanmar Burma when it was coming in from the cold or they thought it was it was moving towards democracy this obviously hasn't happened but at that time they thought it was and when we were there ISDS which is the, what the system is called investor state dispute settlement was a large part of the menu of policies that are pushed on governments that are being reintegrated into this system because the western the western states the western corporations know it's a vital tool for them to use to make sure that new states can't move and can't go against corporate power around the world. So to take this up to El Salvador, so the book started really with this story in El Salvador. We got a call, myself and Claire, we, I'd previously been at the Financial Times, she'd been at The Guardian, she'd been covering the aid industry 
uh, and development. And in the Financial Times, I've been in Washington, so I've been looking at the World Bank. And we were both talking about, we got this amazing fellowship where the director of the organization called an amazing American investigative journalist called Gavin McFadden, who was actually a mentor to Julian Assange and Bernie Sanders back in the 60s. But anyway, he said to us, look, you can do whatever you want for two years and you have a travel budget. So we thought we should be as ambitious as possible. And we both agreed that from the reporting we've been doing, and I know you, this is a lot of, you've done a lot of great work on this as well, Chris. We believe that the biggest story in the world today, political story, is the, is the fact that corp the corporate form, the, the economic instrument of corporations has eaten the state that created it. Um, and this has been a battle that's been waged over 400 or more than 400 years from the first joint stock company, which they say was created in the middle of the 16th century in London. But there's been this battle waged. Anyway, so we, we, we decided that was it. And we wanted to think of a way of doing it. And we got a call from an activist, actually, at that point. And Claire had been doing a bit of work on ISDS. And she, one of her colleagues or one of her sources said, you should go to El Salvador. They've got this really, uh, 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 I say amazing case, amazing in the sense of the resistance to it, because she was saying, look, this isn't like ISDS is one of these sort of arcane, obscure systems that no one knows about, and no one talks about. But in El Salvador, everyone knows about it. And everyone knows what ICSID is. It's called CIADI in the Spanish acronym. And she said, you've got to come and talk to the activists. And the government were, was, were, were willing to fight, these case, fight this case, which a lot of governments aren't as well. At the time, it was FMLN in power, the former uh, the party that came out of the Marxist guerrillas in the 1980s. So we went along um, and we saw just uh, what this system means and what this system allows to happen. Because... The people in El Salvador understood that this was a massive attack on their sovereignty. This mining company had been uh, not been given a permit to, to dig for gold because it was a massive risk to the local population. Now, you would think that a government, its its role and its priority should be to enact policies which which are in this fundamentally protect the security and health of their citizenry. That's what the system is about stopping. So this this corporation said, well, you can't revoke our um, uh, uh, our permit and we're going to take you to ICSID for $300 million. Um, and the government publicised it and it became this big cause celebra. Everyone on the ground knew about it. So it was an amazing experience to start. We then went to South Africa for a second case, which was maybe the craziest case of all, which was a case where an Italian uh, granite miners had taken the ANC government and the South African state to ICSID because of black empowerment policies. These were policies which were enacted at, at the end of apartheid to, uh, to, um, uh, to uh, correct the historical injustice of apartheid. And part of it was to give 30% of every company to historically disadvantaged people, so black people. This Italian company said this is an attack on our investor rights. They took South Africa to court. And in fact, that was settled out of court. Um, and the, the South African government said, you don't have to apply uh, this policy to your company. So they didn't have to apply. And the reason the South Africans did that, we talked to ministers when we went to, to South Africa, or people who had been ministers at the time. And they said, we wanted to keep it as quiet as possible because we didn't want to incentivize other companies to do this because we knew that they could win or they could at least take a lot of money from us. So, um, so actually, it was the opposite in South Africa. When we went to South Africa, no one knew about this case, which was a fundamental attack on the South African government and fundamental attack on post-apartheid policies. Anyway, so it's the, the book developed out of that. I think that the ISDS system is one of the most, is the emblematic system in the book because it's impossible to justify. And as you know, Chris, all these systems that enforce corporate rule 
that enforce investor rights, that enforce the rule of the 1%, they all have quite sophisticated ideology bolted on top of them to justify them to the general population in as much as they need to do, but also to the people on the inside who don't want to look in the mirror every day and think I'm a monster. ISDS doesn't even have that. It's one of the few systems I've ever come across where people find it very hard to even justify it because the only justification they say is that it increases um, uh, the, the chance that a, a country will attract foreign investment because companies won't be scared to go somewhere because they know if something bad happens to them, they'll have recourse to a supranational venue where they can get compensation. But of course, that is uh, completely opposite to what we're told capitalism, how capitalism works. If you go to the Congo and you open a, a mine uh, and you, you're gonna, you might get huge returns, but yeah, you might get expropriated or get your asset taken by a paramilitary force, but that's part of the risk. This system ensures you against that risk and de-risks de -risk capitalism for the global corporate um, transnational class. So uh, it's a huge attack on democracy. And I'll just finish with this. It's not only the courses, sorry, it's not only the cases that reach court that, um, that are the problem here. In fact, I think that's uh, actually not even the biggest problem. The problem is the policy chill that effect this has around the world, because a lot of governments now, when they're considering taking policies, which might infringe on corporate um, profits, that this is now getting hit with one of these cases is now a big consideration. We got internal documents, for example, from Guatemala through the Freedom of Information Act there about a mine, again, a mine that was they were evaluating whether to grant an environmental permit. And the, the, the government were talking on the inside, not about, well, there, there were some discussions about the impact the, this mine would have on the local community, but in the end, they, they did, they were talking about how, what, what, um, what kind of, problems that have at ICSID and whether they get sued by this company if they if they didn't give the environmental permit. In the end, they gave the environmental permit because it was such too big a risk. And that happens across the board. Um, and it's a real attack on democracy. It's a real attack on the ability on, on anything we uh, any uh, ability of a government to react to its citizenry as it should do uh, uh, ahead of corporate power. And it, it's not just in the developing world now. It's coming home to roost. We call it the boomerang effect. And in fact, a lot of these systems which were set up to enforce corporate rule during the fall of formal colonialism are now coming back to hit the states that they were created in. Let's talk about how countries are pressured into, you do in the book, how they're pressured into accepting these agreements, which are, of course, very dis, uh, disadvantageous. And then let's go back to Salvador, because that was one of the few examples where they were successful in fighting back. Yeah, well, so just as an explanation, this system is enshrined in free trade agreements, um, bilateral investment treaties, which are called BITS, and other sort of um, trade uh, agreement, uh, financial agreements or trade agreements between countries. And one of the major revelations that I had during the reporting of this book was about free trade agreements or so-called free trade agreements, because free trade agreements, when you hear that, you think that's about the mutual lowering of tariffs. That's about greasing trade. In fact, that's probably like a page of a free trade agreement. There's hun they're hundreds of pages long, and, and it's about enforce, uh, uh, um, um, creating all these different mechanisms, legal mechanisms for which corporations can operate in that country unfettered. And I think that free trade agreements should be called corporate rights agreements, really. Uh, and ISDS is enshrined, uh, investor state dispute settlement, this, this system where multinational corporations can sue states is often enshrined in free trade agreements. So it's in NAFTA, it's in CAFTA. Um, it was going to be in TTIP, which was this touted as the biggest free trade agreement in history. 
between Europe and the United States, which I think has been ice now. But um, and then there's bilateral investment treaties. So and often countries don't even know what they're getting into. So in the South Africa case, it was quite interesting. They were talking about the the, the bilateral investment treaties which were used for this by this Italian mining company, and they said these were agreements signed by Mandela after the fall of apartheid, and he'd go to say Belgium. And they'd say, oh, welcome, you're coming back into the fold now. They'd have a nice dinner and then say, let's just sign this nice little uh, uh, bilateral investment treaty. The, the imputation being that this meant nothing. It was a bit of diplomatic goodwill. That's what That was the term that was used by people who we talked to who formerly served in the ANC government. And then 20 years later, they're getting hit with these suits that they didn't even know were being could be activated through these agreements. And that's often what you see. It's done. It, the whole system is done very secretly. And in fact, when we went to the World Bank, as I said, we went to the archives, but we also were inside the World Bank and we were talking to people um, at the different branches. So that the IFC, which we can also talk about, which is a majorly important institution. But and we were saying in the world within the World Bank building, we were saying, do you know where ICSID is? Um, and people even who worked in the World Bank didn't know what ICSID was. So it's kind of this like bastard child that no one wants to talk about. No one. Uh, no one knew about it, which was a revelation, and, and even less people know about it on the outside. Um, as I say, mainly because it's completely indefensible. But um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, the whole system is done. Uh, that's why I call it a shadow legal system because it's all very, very secretive. And even the cases themselves, they're not open court. It's very, very hard to get documentation. Um, the 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 system by which arbitrators have chosen is opaque. Um, how uh, the the, the uh, compensation they get, um, the whole system is just massively secretive, um, and and the the problem is it's often in the interests of the corporation and the state to keep it that way. That's the problem. As I mentioned, the South African government wanted to keep the case really quiet because they don't want to incentivize um, other companies to do it because this system effectively allows any company in the world to because you can do another thing called jurisdiction shopping. So even if you were based in a country which doesn't have a bilateral investment treaty with the country you want to sue, you just open a shell company in the country that does and then activate it through that. So you can effectively do it. Uh, you, find any way, you can find a way if you need to. Um, and the, 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 maybe the most corrupting part of the whole system is what's called third-party financing, which is that there's boutique financial firms which invest solely in claims against governments. And they loan to com companies, not only to pay for the expenses of the case, but also to expand that. But they say... We'll loan you this money. You don't have to pay us back if you lose. But if you win, you give us a cut of the award. Now, we're talking often sometimes about billions of dollars. Uh, in the case of Occidental Petroleum, they've won billions from Ecuador. There's a case now against Honduras, which is getting some attention in the media, which it, where an American company is taking Honduras to uh, ICSID uh, for $11 billion, which is a third of their GDP for, for uh, the current government of Honduras is uh, trying to shut down an SCZ, which was opened uh, by the previous US-backed neoliberal regime. They're trying to reverse that, and they're getting hit with this suit. And the, and the Honduran government don't know what to do because this is this is a such a huge sum of money that it could have huge impact on a whole their whole program and the ability of them to survive. Uh, they can't pay it, so it's going to be interesting what happens to that. But um, it's a massive. Uh, uh, attack on democracy and I think that uh, the left which was exercised by some of these sort of what was called the anti-globalization movement in the 90s but it got um, derailed a bit by September 11th from the war on terror but this, these systems have got mo uh, only grown in strength and I think the left needs to re-engage with these issues and 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 this system needs to be publicized as well as the other systems we talk about in the book.
let's talk about the case of Salvador because it's an exceptional case and, and mention what the fate of this activist, Marcelo Rivera. Yeah. So the other point was, as you know, around the world, and this is another thing that's um, hushed up by um, uh, the corporate media. Uh, there are inspiring activists all over the world fighting back against corporate rule. In the case of El Salvador, there were activists, there was Marcelo River who was, Rivera who was killed, but there were others, many others who were killed, who were fighting mining projects. And it's always the same. It was always the same when we come across it. We talk to people and say, yeah, well, well, we can't prove that it was the mining company because this was someone who goes past on a motorbike, uh, lets out a flurry of bullets, kills this person, and no, uh, the, the legal system doesn't really work. There's not the police, the detective system doesn't work. So they don't find who kills them. Everyone assumes it was associated with his activism against the, the mining company, um, but it's never it's never proven. Um, uh, in the case, I went to um, actually to Colombia as well, which is a very interesting case because Chiquita, the mine, the banana company, formerly known as United Fruit, changed their name because they overthrew a few too many governments, and it was bad for bad press. But they they um, they were actually take Chiquita were taken to uh, court in the United States under the Alien Tort Statute over their behaviour in in um, in Colombia because they had hired paramilitaries and paid paramilitaries to to uh, kill. Uh, uh, activists and trade unionists who were fighting uh, Chiquita in Colombia. Uh, that case, I think, is still going, or uh, I'm not 100% sure, but it was going when I went there. Uh, I think it was in 2016. But um, but often it's very, very, it's complete impunity, really, because there's enough layers of degree of separation. Like in the case of Rivera, there was no, uh, that it was completely complete impunity in Honduras, which I mentioned, which we also went to. There was a um, there were lots of activists against Facu, uh, an, an oligarch called Facuse who's now died, but he was in Aguan Valley, and and there were lots of activists getting killed who were fighting against his um, uh, uh, his as, uh, companies um, and their actions, and they a lot of people were getting killed. Nothing ever happened, and actually they were they got investment from the World Bank. But this is what you see. No one's fighting back against this um, on the inside because the whole system's set up to promote corporate power. The only people fighting it, and, only, and the only people really who understand it and have to understand it is the people on the ground because they have no choice to imbibe all these false ideologies which justify it to the people on the inside. They understand what the corporations are doing when their friends are getting killed for, for, for just raising a hand of dissent against what they're doing. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really um, it, it, it's a really depressing um, uh, in that sense, but it's also really optimistic in a sense that there is real uh, uh, activism against a corporate rule, and it, it does win sometimes. There's there's the case of uh, Bolivia, which is which is talked about a lot. But in 2000, um, the the water system uh, in Cochabamba, the third largest city in Bolivia, was privatized and handed over to the American corporation Bechtel, who jacked up prices massively, made it impossible for most people to afford water. They even made collecting rainwater illegal, and then. Huge amounts of people came out in the streets. Two weeks later, the government had to reverse it. Um, and then five years later, they had actually their first indigenous president who was a liberation leader who nationalized countless um, uh, industries when he got into power and was later praised by the World Bank and IMF for the economic success under his government. Uh, uh, which And his government actually did 
the opposite of everything you're told to do by the IMF and World Bank, which is interesting in its own right. But so, yes, it, it, the people are working at high, high risk, um, but it's inspiring to see their their uh, their bravery, but also the successes that can be brought about. Because the reason, as I mentioned, that a lot of this is kept undercover is because it's unjustifiable and it's clearly uh, impossible to justify by if you know the facts. And the other problem we have. And what we should focus on in the West, because we have a responsibility and that we have a freedom that these other people don't. And we, we can we can say stuff and do activism and raise the alarm with, with a degree of freedom they don't have. But the media we have, the corporate media, is infested with corporations. They're owned by corporations, but they're also that they do all these advertorials now. There's every part of um, the media is just infested with corporate power. And so is the NGOs. And we came across this because... El Salvador is a good example. Now, this wasn't to do with the ISDS case, but when we went there, we went to a town on the outskirts of um, San Salvador, the capital, called Nehapa. And Nehapa is a, a really poor town, but they live on top of an aquifer. And no one there could afford water um, from the aquifer. Uh, but yet down the road, all these uh, multinational companies were bottling water, uh, bottling the water to make Coke and other things. One of them being Sab Miller, which is one of the biggest companies in the world. It bottles Coke. Um, and we did a story for The Guardian. <laughs> so naturally, in The Guardian, its whole development website is sponsored by the Gates Foundation. So the article went under the Gates Foundation logo. The Gates Foundation is not a benign player in the system. It's one of the major uh, forces for pushing a neoliberal sort of idea of development. But anyway, um, they, the, the Sab Miller um, sent me in that when I, I went to Sab Miller for comment, as you do, as, as you do. And they sent me a report. They said, look, you got it all wrong. We've done nothing wrong. Look at this report we co-authored with, with Oxfam. And I sort of couldn't really believe that because Oxfam, I mean, I'm a bit less naive now. But I thought back then, I was like, well, Oxfam, they're doing some good in the world. Um, but this report basically exculpated Sad Miller of any, any um, uh, wrongdoing in the HAPA um, and uh, had the Oxfam America logo and I just thought that is incredible. And then obviously it goes onto the Guardian website under the Gates Foundation. Two days later, this was amazing. An interview with uh, an interview appears on the Guardian, not an advertorial, not not flagged as anything. An, a two, an interview with the Latin America, Latin America division head of Sab Miller doesn't mention our article, but it's basically him talking about why there's problems with water in Latin America, and it's all about the the pol political corruption. Of course, that's the that's the term du jour of the of the multinational corporations. They put they met, they blame the victim. Why are those politicians corrupt? I wonder. Is it anything to do with the corporations themselves? But anyway, and then I sort of thought that is incredible that they. It wasn't a letter. It was a it was an interview. And then I looked into it and I saw that Sab Miller um, funded uh, a whole section of the Guardian's website as well. So you see, and the, I, I publicised that, and then soon soon after I was banned from ever writing for the Guardian again. But the problem is that I, I had a predilection to go against um, this stuff. But your average reporter who's getting bombarded with all this, with these Oxfam reports, with these uh, uh, these uh, uh, officials from Sab Miller that they and they, they don't know that the Guardian's funded by Sab Miller, they don't they don't. It's very hard to push back against that, and, they, and often and nearly no one does. So you see that it's a panorama of control. And it's very, very hard to get the truth out about corp this corporate system in the corporate media. It's not, 
it's not a coincidence, is it? You wouldn't go to Pravda to get the, the re, uh, reality, uh, to, to, to understand the reality of what the Soviet Union was doing. Um, and you don't go to the corporate media to get the reality of what corporations are up to. So I think to conclude uh, from this book, I think the responsibility we have is to not play that game because we have power. We have power in the West because these are, this is where all these systems are uh, operated from. We have power and we need to use that power to, to tell the truth, even if it means we get marginalized from the mainstream media, which, which is an inevitable consequence of doing it. Uh, they were successful in El Salvador in blocking the mining agreement, the activists. Uh, one of the very few successes you write about in the book. I want to talk about just, we have a couple minutes left, the boomerang effect, because it comes back to haunt uh, us and you use Germany as an example. Uh, just explain in the last two minutes what, what took place. Well, in Germany, so Hermann Abs, as I mentioned, was the German banker that was kind of the godfather of this system. And then we went to Hamburg in Germany to look at um, a case. Well, there was two cases, actually. Um, Germany had decommissioned their nuclear power after the Fukushima disaster in Japan because they said it was too dangerous. And this uh, Swedish company, Vattenfall, who ran nuclear power plants in Germany, took them to uh, these courts for billions. And then there was another case where Vattenfall had a coal-powered uh, uh, power plant in, in, in Hamburg as well, which we went to. And they had ra- uh, the, 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 the waste from the plant was raising the water uh, temperature uh, the, uh, in the river that ran side it, but also like way off, way far into to Hamburg. And they challenged that uh, the environmental permit where they said, you've got to keep the river below a certain level. They challenged it. And then the, the local government basically just said, OK, you can you can go back to how you wanted it before. So that's it's a way to strong arm people. And it's, it's a, it's a, it was amazing talking to people in Hamburg because actually one of them said to us, I knew about the system before. I was shocked when I realized that we could get hit with this stuff. And it, that's something we saw all across the world. Uh, and we reported a lot in Europe. So, and uh, I'll just finish with a case in Britain recently. One of the a major part of the book is about um, how corporations have chiseled off physical space from states. That's a whole another topic. But the main one is SE's special economic zones, which are kind of like corporate utopias. Um, you don't have to pay uh, normal tax. You don't have to pay customs duties. You don't have to apply the minimum wage. All these things that corporations, if they designed the world, would that this is how it would look. But anyway, Britain now. A couple of years ago, announced that we're going to open 13 freeports. Freeport sounds like a nice thing, but a freeport is effectively a SEZ, and that's Britain now. Uh, so it's the, re- the 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 West, the developed world, is has joined the race to the bottom and is basically finding any way to sell off uh, the, the few remaining things that it has to corporations. And it's basically in Britain, which. Uh, which uh, NHS for many decades was the was was a beacon in the world. People it's the national up, national health service. National health service. Yes, it was created by the uh, at the the labor at the at the labor government after the Second World War. Free at the point of use. Uh, anyone can use it. And me growing up, I'd go to you. You never ever were taught, uh, asked about money when you went into a hospital to see the GP. It's amazing. But we're we're now privatizing the whole of the NHS and making it more and more like. The American system, which is the worst in the world in terms of the uh, how much it costs to outcut health outcomes. So why are we doing that? We're not doing that because the government's thinking, okay, we, this is a good idea. We're doing that because government isn't making policies. The corporations are making policies and enforcing them on the government. Um, and it, there's very, very little pushback against it in the Britain because again, it's all being done st- in, by stealth. I went for an X-ray the other day, and it was 
it was out in a, a trailer outside the hospital that was run by G4S and Serco, um, two companies. Uh, just the whole of the NHS is that our ambulances have G4S logos on now. So stuff you wouldn't have thought would be possible uh, is happening. And they're eating every part of the state and they've erected the mechanisms to do that internationally, but also, as you know, domestically. I mean, we haven't touched on that and the book doesn't really touch on that. But domestically, in terms of the United States, particularly, the corporations have just colonized the political system. And it's impossible for most politicians now to get elected without heavy backing from the corporate sector. So that's why we call it silent coup, because in 2023, this is, as I said, this is a war which has been waged for 500 years by the corporation uh, against the state. Um, but effectively, in 2023, they've won. And there's very, very few spaces left that they haven't colonized. And the cultural outgrowth of that as well is that um, people, I think that the prevalence of conspiracy theories, you know, like Bill Gates is installing uh, uh, chips in people's brain. There's a lot of it around. I don't know. In the United, I think there is in the United States as well. But I think a lot of it is that people understand that the politicians they're seeing on TV aren't making the decisions. And um, there's no analytical in the corporate media. There's no analytical framework for them to understand why that is. So you reach for like, I don't know, a individual or a cabal. Uh, when in fact the answer for me is corporate power has been uh, that is where the those politicians aren't making decisions they're right in that but the reason the people are who are corporations the big ones and they are uh, in turn in the work I do on a day-to-day -day level with declassified I look at a lot of declassified files British government and they talk about it so openly they are talking when they talk when the prime minister Tony Blair or whoever it is is talking to other presidents he's just talking about a uh, big British businesses and how we can help them. Uh, I did a story recently about BP in um, in uh, in Russia under Putin and how uh, how Blair had sucked up to Putin pretty much solely because he wanted to help BP uh, get into Russia in the early two thousands. And this is a story that is a whole another story. But Putin in in two thousand three was given a state visit to to the UK the first time since the late nineteenth century, like over a hundred years of a Russian head. Was, uh, he came and went round in a horse-drawn carriage with the Queen around London. Uh, a couple of days later, BP got the contract to be the, become the biggest foreign investor in Russia's history. Um, and these, that's, that's how the world works. And you can't talk about it, but we need to talk about it, because otherwise people are going to be reaching for these conspiracy theories. And it's quite scary because, I mean, you've done a lot of work on this, but if you look at fascist fascism, uh, especially like the Nazi regime, before the Nazis came into power, conspiracy theories were... were were prevalent and all it took was a demagogue to come along and say it was all uh, it's all the fault of the jews it might be some different group next time but the point is we're at with the this the level of discourse now is waiting for someone you've got trump in the united states he's a good example you know like he's uh he he he, he uses the, the the confusion and he uses the uh inability of people to locate power to 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 enforce a, a corporate a, a a fascistic agenda really um we haven't quite had it in the uk because we haven't had anyone as charismatic as trump we've got boris johnson but he was a bit of a clown but i do worry and i think that's why as i say just to conclude that the left needs to re-engage on this issue and i know you have and you've been one of the most important journalists really pushing this idea but it's not it's not something that is widely enough uh, covered i don't think by, by the left media or uh, the left intellectuals, because it, it is, for me, if you cannot understand the world today unless you're looking at it 
through the lens of corporate power. That is the integral issue. Uh, and the fact the state is not operating in the interests of people anymore. Uh, and there's no form of democracy because it's been completely destroyed by corporations. Great. That was Matt Kennard, a former staff reporter for the Financial Times and co-founder and chief investigator at Declassified UK. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granandino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com.